and welcome ladies and gentlemen to this week's edition of Dollars and Making Sense, a weekly show about money, finance and investing. Broadcast locally on Radio Northern Beaches and nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Ray Treveson from OTG Capital. I'm really pleased to have back at the microphone again, Peter Bobbin. And Peter, if you recall, ladies and gentlemen, is a lawyer and an accountant. Yes, I know, both in the same shell. It's amazing. But um, Peter comes to us, uh, compliments of my association with the Australian Shareholders Association. And Peter's done some wonderful work in the area of estate planning. And the last time we had Peter on the show, we were talking about five key documents around estate planning. Now, today, uh, first of all, welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you, Ray. Happy to be here. Wonderful. And uh, we'd worked this out before, ladies and gentlemen, but today what we're going to talk about are what are the major current de facto hidden death taxes and what we can do about it. Now, uh, if you ask a politician today, is there a death tax, depending on whether they're in government or in opposition, one will say, yes, there is, and the other will say, absolutely not. And so I'm not going to venture into that. What we're going to talk with, uh, about today, though, specifically is the law as it stands today, and specifically around capital gains tax and super. So, Peter, I understand you're pretty knowledgeable in this space, right? I, yeah, I've been working in it for a little while now, Ray. <laughs> That's the reason we have him on the show, ladies and gentlemen. I know a little bit, but um, I think Peter's uh, breadth on this is is pretty pretty darn wide and varied. So a little bit about um, inheritance taxes. For those of you that may not know, in 1895, every Australian state had actually its own inheritance estate tax. And over the course of the next 65 or so years, they were eventually abolished. And so by, I think it was 1978 or 1982, all states had abolished their state-based death taxes. Now, um, that doesn't mean that we still aren't, you know, when somebody dies that, you know, the tax man won't come calling. So let's talk about that today, Peter. Capital gains tax. What's what's the tax man going to be visiting somebody that's just died and their estate around CGT? Let me take you back. I mean, to reflect on what you just said a moment ago, you're absolutely right. New South Wales, the last government to abandon death duties. And just a few years later, 19 September 1985, Paul (laughs) Keaton, then Treasurer under Bob Hawke, Prime Minister, steps up to the dispatch box in government and says, Australia, from this day forward, we have capital gains tax. Now, what's fascinating, Ray, is that um, at that time, it's in Hansard, at that time, he said, don't worry, in the fifth year of operation, capital gains tax will only raise $25 million. He got that wrong, didn't he? (laughs) 85, 86, 87, 88, 89, 1990, how much did capital gains tax raise? It raised over $500 million. How much does it raise now? Over a billion. Back in those days, as you mentioned in the beginning, Ray, when when all of the states had death duties, you would see it in the revenue statements of every state. You would see death duties. Someone would pass away and you would see that there was a death duty that had to be met. That is the astoundingly clever thing about Australian capital gains tax because it is a de facto death duty. We just don't see it. It's not measured. The tax office can't measure it because of the way capital gains tax operates. Let me help you to understand this. You see, 
when 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 Paul Keating said from 1985 that from this day forward we have capital gains tax, what happens is in, if if a person passes away, so if 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 my if if my mother were to pass away and and if she held a holiday home that she'd acquired in 1982, such so a for her it's a pre-capital gains taxable asset. What the tax law says here is that on her death, what I inherit, now I may inherit the home if she's got a will that gives it to me, but what I also inherit is a, is a value of that home from that day going forward for capital gains tax purposes. So from the time that she's held it, 1982, up until the day she passes, it's exempt from capital gains tax for her. But from when I inherit it, what the tax law says is I will inherit it from her with a market value attribution. So I'm deemed to have a cost base from which a future capital gains tax gets calculated. And here's the hidden part about the death duty. You see, if in a two years later I sell that inherited asset and I sell it for more than what's perhaps listed in the probate or that market value, I'm paying capital gains tax. Now, I'm not sure if you actually heard what I just said, Ray, but this is the clever thing about capital gains tax when it was introduced. Within one generation, every asset in Australia will be subject to capital gains tax. Because everyone will die. Because that one generation will eventually die. It's been in place for 38 years. A lot of people have passed on. And when they've passed on, they've passed on an asset. It might be shares, a share portfolio, managed investment funds, a holiday home, a personal residence. And those assets may have in their hands artwork have been exempt from capital gains tax because they personally held it from before 1985. But it's been inherited and it's subject to capital gains tax going forward. And therein, just by itself, lies a de facto death duty. Why? Because, well, you know, if the estate sells... So, so I take that holiday home that I inherited from my mother and I then pass it on to my children. They end up with a tax position on that holiday home, not from my date of death, because now they're inheriting... You see, when the asset is in my hands, it's now subject to capital gains tax going forward. Now, I don't sell it. I enjoy it. The family enjoy it. Fair so we don't, have it, we don't have a tax payable. But I then pass it via my will to my children. Now, those children will receive the asset, will enjoy the asset, but they'll also get a cost base for tax purposes. And that tax cost base they get is mine. So they don't get it with a beginning point to calculate tax going forward from when I passed away. It's from when their grandmother, my mother, passed away. But is tax actually payable uh, at all or it would not be until the asset is actually sold? That's the clever thing about this. That's why capital gains tax is not feared as a death duty because tax is not payable at that time. But I can tell you from my experience with deceased estates, it's very common that the will will be administered, the assets will be distributed, 
and then within a few years, those beneficiaries will then look at those various assets, look at their own lifestyle, and they'll make adjustments and they'll sell some of those assets. And that's the clever thing because back in death duty days, it would be recorded as a death duty amount that's being raised. Today, when that person sells that asset that they've inherited and it's got this latent capital gains tax running with it, there's no record of the fact that this was an inherited asset upon which capital gains tax is now being paid because it just goes into the person's tax return. Now, I'm just curious though, Peter, because when CGT is calculated and for the audiences out there that may or may not be aware, there is a discount structure there as well around the CPI. And so, you know, the amount of capital gains tax you pay would be then discounted in accordance with the inflation rate that the, the tax office would deem every year. And certainly, you know, in the period that we're in now, that the inflation rate's been certainly a lot higher than it has been for the past 10 or so years. So therefore, you could potentially surmise that if inflation has kept track with the asset and it hasn't been wildly uh, going up, would you not be doing anything? Do, you'll do a cut on this one. Um, right, what's this, going on? Uh, the CPI um, was uh, dumped around uh, um, uh, 20 years ago. The CPI. Okay, so there, there again. I, no, we'll keep that in the show because that's good for me to learn and it's good for, for listeners to hear that. I naturally assumed that, that that discount was still there. So there you go. I've learned something new today. So um, the um, uh, the law was actually simplified, Ray, which is rare to find the law. <laughs> the simple rule is if someone has held an asset for more than 12 months, you get a 50% discount on the capital gain. Ah, okay. Now, what I want to do is because I want to really, like, we're, we're talking about death duties and estates. So I just want to give you this as an example of why it's important to understand capital gains tax as far as the assets that you have. Let's let's assume for the moment that we've got a person who has two properties. Both of them have been held for a very long time, but both of them have been held inside that capital gains tax period. They were both acquired after 1985. Two pieces of real estate. One is a holiday home and the other is the home they live in. And both of them cost $200,000 to buy. That's how long ago it, it was that they purchased them. And both of them today, for simplicity, for my simple mathematical mind, both of them are valued at a million dollars, both of them. Now, they could, they, they wouldn't, you, you, you wouldn't blame them if, in terms of doing a will, they gave the family home to the daughter million dollars worth and the other home to the son you know the one who loved surfing anyway also worth a million dollars but let's have a look at what they've in fact done you see they've given the family home which is exempt from capital gains tax to the daughter so what she's got if she chose to sell the home and if she, if she sells it particularly within two years of of the parent passing um, even the gain in that two-year period is tax-exempt. You'll get the million dollars. The son, though, you see, if, if he sold what he inherited, which also has a value of a million dollars, and he if he sold it at that same time that his sister is selling, he'll get a capital gain. Remember, we're saying we're selling it for a million. 
but it cost 200. So the gain component is 800,000. We then apply the discount, this 50% reduction, the simplified way of calculating capital gains tax. Um, that says the first 400,000 is tax-free. So 400 is in fact taxable. And assuming that particularly at the level of 400, um, the top tax is going to be paid, he'll be paying capital gains tax on that home of $200,000. Out of the million, his net will be 800. Out of the million, her net was a million. The gifts don't seem so equal anymore, do they? No, they certainly don't. And I think uh, that's a really good point. And we're going to take a short break. You're here on Dollars and Making Sense. I'm Ray Trevis and I'm here with Peter Bobbin. And we are talking about hidden death duties and taxes. And we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, and thank you for listening to Dollars and Making Sense, a weekly radio program about finance, money and investing on Radio Northern Beaches and nationally on the community radio network around Australia. The views, comments and opinions aired during our program should not be construed or viewed as financial advice. Any commentary is general advice only and does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. You should consider whether the advice is suitable for you and your personal circumstances. If in doubt, you should contact an authorised licensed financial planner. We welcome questions and feedback and you can get in touch with us via our blog, social media channels or email. Please search for Dollars and Making Sense in your favourite podcast platform or check out our blog at otgcapital.com.au forward slash blog. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Dollars and Making Sense, a weekly program about finance, money and investing. I'm your host, Ray Trevison. I'm here with Peter Bobbin, a lawyer and an accountant who does a lot of work with the Australian Shareholders Association in and around estate planning. Now, today we are talking about the hidden death duties. And before we went to the break, Peter, we were talking about CGT, and certainly I was schooled, and thank you for setting me straight on something that really I should have known a lot better about. But uh, thank you nonetheless uh, around the CGT uh, discount and the CPI. So, again, I made some assumptions, and it was good to certainly come up to speed. Now, we're going to move on and we're going to now talk about superannuation and what happens. And in a previous show, we were talking about super and the, the need for it to be treated separately. Now, we're going to start talking now about super and what happens when it passes from family member in to another family member as a result of death. So I, I guess the first one, there are certain uh, classes of family that may inherit. Maybe we should deal with that first off. Yes, right, That's, and this is quite important because um, the way the superannuation rules in Australia are structured, that there's only a class of dependents, uh, and that's what the phrase is actually called, dependents, that are able to receive the superannuation directly. Now, vertically, they are a spouse of a person, including a de facto spouse, children of a person where the step relationship between the parents is still in place, stepchildren as well can come within that idea or concept of children. Um, a person, in fact, actually, so, so if they're not a spouse and they're not children, but they're otherwise financially dependent, then 
they too can receive super. These are the people who can receive the super. And, and um, where there's an interdependent relationship, and that's all. You see, grandchildren can't receive a person super, not directly. A brother, no, unless they can show they were financially dependent, they cannot receive the super directly. A parent, no, they cannot receive a super directly. If the intention is that for a 24-year-old, for example, they want their parents to benefit from their superannuation, if they can't establish this interdependency or, or financial dependency, they need to channel the super so it runs through their will. Okay. And then their estate. And in their will, they need to say, I want my super to go to my parents. So there are tax, but there are tax implications though for when you fall out when you fall outside of that that categorization that you've just done, there's going to be tax payable, isn't there? Well, there are significant tax ramifications that it's really important to be aware of. So, um, um, Ray, I know it may not be, be as obvious, but I'm over the age of 60. <laughs> now, on the 5th of July, my birth date, 19, 2019, when I turned 60, I celebrated and why did I celebrate? Because from that day forward, superannuation was tax-free for me. I can draw money out of super and it's tax-free. And, and that will continue for fundamentally, unless the rules change, um, that'll continue for the rest of my life. Um, in the event of my dying, or wait, wait a minute, no, I don't like talking about my death. In the event of my wife dying... <laughs> <laughs> we mentioned in that first discussion we had, Ray, is proper estate planning is about what has someone else done or not done. Such Absolutely. Let's be greedy. Let's be greedy. <laughs> in the event of my wife dying, I get her superannuation tax-free. Not because I'm 60, it's merely because I'm the partner in life. But what a lot of people are not aware of is superannuation has this this recognized thing it's it, it's actually broken down and and I'm, i want to encourage your listeners to have a look at their superannuation member statement and <laughs> what i'm wanting them to look for is there's two phrases taxable component and non-taxable component and if it's not on the member statement get up your superannuation provider and tell them to tell you what is the taxable component and the non-taxable component? And a lot of people look at that, particularly people in that plus 60 years of age, because, hey, how is that relevant? Super for me is tax-free. And that's the hidden part about it. Because, yes, it's hidden. Uh, it's tax-free for me. Yes, it's hidden if something happened to my wife um, uh, and, and it's tax-free when I receive the super. But it's not tax-free if our adult children receive the super. I mean, I might just interject there quickly, Peter. You haven't heard a lot of my previous shows because I simply say to people, read your statement because, you know, whether they, they're actually, because I, 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 I rail at my listeners to please read their superannuation statements, not just from the taxable, non-taxable component, but also about nomination, also about, 
you know, have you got insurance and TPB in there? You know, and if you're under 30, do you really need that? I mean, I've been railing about this for years. So it's so pleasing for someone else to say, please read your statements. <laughs> so yeah. I, 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 yeah, I cannot endorse what you're saying um, uh, more highly. Yeah, read it. And for this, <laughs> for this purpose, I'm, I'm actually suggesting that I'm just asking you, looking for this phrase, taxable component, non-taxable component. Mm -hmm. What it will do is it'll take the total super balance, whatever that may be, the total super balance, and divide it between taxable component and non-taxable component. That's what it will do. Now, um, the average male in their 60s will have superannuation of a little under 300000 And... Um, um, in terms of 300000 commonly that super has been made up of employer contributions over the years, maybe even a little bit of a salary sacrifice over the years. Mm -hmm. and, and you see, this is how these two components are made up, the taxable component, non-taxable component. The non-taxable component is if I put money into super out of my pocket, I'm not claiming a tax benefit, that falls into this category known as taxable, not non-taxable super. The rest of it, my employer contributions, my tax-deducted contributions, my salary sacrifice contributions, they all fall into this area known as taxable component. So let's take that fellow, average Australian male, 65 years of age, average amount of little under 300,000, and the majority of that will likely be taxable component. If they draw the money out, it's tax-free. If they die, and their partner in life receives it, it's tax-free. If, however, they may, in the family situation, be the second to die, and the money is passing to their adult children, the tax rate, if the adult children receive it directly, is 17%. So, you know, what we're talking about is $51,000 in tax payable out of that three hundred. And no one knows it's there. Well, they do now because we've just told them. But I think, Peter, one of the, the uh, and again, one of the things that it, it's a strange thing to me is that when super was devised, and, and we referred to this gentleman uh, in, the, in uh, the first half of the show today, Paul Keating, and Paul Keating is the, is the architect of the, the superannuation system that we have in play today, it was never ever designed to be an intergenerational wealth transfer device, and so I guess the proponents and the the original architects of the of the system might argue and say that's exactly the way it's supposed to work. W what do you say to that? Um, I say thank you for telling me the politics. Let's now get back to the practical. <laughs> like, and 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 let me let me give you a little bit of practical reality on this, right? We've got this man, average male, 65, 300,000. It's all from his employer contributions. It's all taxable component facing a $51,000 tax line. Let me just, let, let, let's just reflect on this, Ray. You see, if on Monday the doctor tells him, I'm sorry, go home and sort your affairs out. Tuesday he goes home. Wednesday he does nothing. Thursday he dies. His children will be paying fifty-one thousand in tax. Right. Compare that to Monday. The doctor says, "Go home and sort your affairs out." Tuesday, he goes home. Wednesday, he drains his super. He just takes it all out. 
puts it into his name, he's allowed to. He's over the age of 60. It's all tax-free. There's 300000 now sitting in his name. Thursday he dies, Friday no tax payable because there's no super. Yeah, and, and funny you say that, uh, ladies and gentlemen, there's something called a re-contribution re strategy that as a financial planner, I actually advised a number of my clients to do that so that exactly what you're talking about uh, reduce the amount of taxable component. Um, and it's perfectly legal, uh, but it's something that people obviously want to consider if they still believe that they're going to have a long runway into their retirement. And I, I'm assuming, Peter, you are assuming a long runway into your retirement, right? Uh, yes. I'm, like I said, when I do my estate plan, everybody around me is dying. Um, but I'm the one <laughs> to live. I'm the survivor. Yeah, now I've got a lot of plans. I guess one of the other things that we, we need to be cognizant of and, again, around the design of the system is that there's a compulsory drawdown as well that people need to be aware of. I think it cuts in from 74 onwards. Uh, I can't remember the exact rates, but you'll actually be told by law that you need to drain your super. And I think it works out that depending on how much you when you get to your early 90s, you sh should actually have no super left if you're an average kind of guy. Look, the, the way it works, Ray, is that if if you turn your superannuation into a pension scheme, if you direct that your superannuation needs to start to pay you a pension, then yes, progressively over time, the amount that you must withdraw increases over time. It runs from um, approximately 5% if you're at that 65 age bracket and when you get into that much later ages, it rises to 14%. But that's if. If you choose not to commence a pension, you don't have to, and you can leave your super in what we commonly describe as its accumulation phase and its continuing investment phase. One of the benefits of making it a pension is that the money, the value, the investments, the assets inside super are now tax-free inside super, and when it gets paid out, it's also tax-free. So it's tax-free at all levels. When I leave it in the accumulation phase, and, hey, I might do that because I've got other non-superannuation wealth that I can live on. So if I left it in the accumulation phase, the interest income or the dividends, et cetera, that it receives will be subject to taxation. It's concessional. By and large, it's in practical terms, 10% for capital gains and 15% for income. And the government has changes afoot with intended operation from 1 July uh, 2025 that places an additional tax when someone has assets in super of more than $3 million. And, and that'll be... That'll be a, yeah. Peter, that'll be a topic that we'll certainly brace for another time because uh, certainly the legislation is being drafted at this point. Look, we're just about out of time. Uh, again, great subject. And uh, again, I'm always flabbergasted how quickly this time flies by when we're talking about this. Peter, it's been a real pleasure having you on Dollars and Making Sense today. Um, love to have you back. Again, we've got so many other topics we can talk about. Um, thank you so kindly for your time today. Thanks again, Ray. Always good to chat.